Hey everybody, welcome to the Collective Podcast. Uh, we have a really amazing uh, show today. We have um, two guests on. Um, we got Scott Ross and returning guest uh, Anthony Scott Burns, who's been on a couple other podcasts. Um, thanks to big thank you to Scott for sharing his time with us. He's um, got an enormous amount of uh, work and involvement in the visual effects industry. He was a, a CEO of Digital Domain. Um, he was also senior senior VP at ILM or Lucasfilms Ltd. Um, he was around like when films like uh, Fight Club and Total Recall and Terminator 2 and Back to the Future 2 and one of my childhood favorites Willow was was being created. And uh, yeah, it's it's really awesome. And he's a <laughs> I was a I was really smitten by a lot of his talks that he's had recently, um, kind of voicing his opinions about the visual effects community and. And thankfully, I have a couple of friends that um, knew him or talked with him, so everybody got kind of linked up. And without further ado, uh, I just want to introduce Scott to the podcast. So thanks for coming on, dude. Appreciate it. Thanks. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much. So, um, I mean, there's so much to talk about. I kind of want to, before we get into all the, you know, the visual effects stuff and the business and all that stuff now, I kind of want to get a little feel of whereabouts you came from and, and how you found yourself in this ridiculous business. And kind of what's motivated you and, and what's kind of pushed you into this kind of stuff so well i was born a really poor young white boy and uh hey, and, me and too awesome <laughs> awesome all of us poor young <laughs> white boys yeah. <laughs> yeah, makes three of us <laughs> yeah um but i was born in the south bronx and uh and then moved um did went to undergraduate school in film and television interestingly enough in the late 60s and early 70s but what i really 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 wanted to do was i really wanted to be john coltrane Okay. And so uh, I practiced saxophone until my fingers bled, but I had this horrible dream that I would wake up at the age of about 45 and I'd be playing bar mitzvahs in a shiny black suit. So <laughs> <laughs> I gave that up and I had moved to the Bay Area and I wound up becoming an audio engineer and um, worked in television and worked in recording studios and the like and um, ultimately wound up. Uh, joining a small video post-production company in San Francisco called One Pass Video in the late 70s and early 80s. And as my Jewish mother always said, um, you know, there's no future in art. You're going to wind up being a drug drug addict or cutting your ear off and eating cadmium yellow paint. <laughs> How kind. And I, ne <laughs> and I never ate cadmium yellow paint. I, I decided that maybe what I should do is move into the business side of the arts world. And so I wound up becoming president of this video post-production, which ultimately wound up becoming the largest video post-production company in the United States with offices in New York and Chicago and LA and San Francisco and Boston. This is in the 70s, you said? Late 70s? This is in the this is in the 80s now. Oh, 80s. Okay. We're moving ahead. And, um, and ultimately, uh, I got really bored with it because we were, we were acquired by a printing company out of Menasha, Wisconsin. And, and needless to say, they just didn't see the world in the same way that I saw it. And um, luckily for me, I was being headhunted by Lucasfilm at the time. And I wound up joining Lucasfilm and uh, heading up Industrial Light Magic. And I was there at the time when digital technology first came into play. So, you know, the perfect storm, being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it took us through the Abyss and Terminator 2 and, you know, uh, Back to the Future, as you mentioned, a couple of other things and, and wound up at the at the end with Jurassic Park. And so 
We had started on Jurassic Park, and at about that time, I decided, you know, maybe I really needed to be entrepreneurial, and um, and so I started my own company, Digital Domain. Wrote a business plan, wound up acquiring the uh, the attention of of Jim Cameron, who was my client when I was at ILM, and he asked if he could join. And then all of a sudden, there was three. Stan Winston came in as another principal. So crazy. <laughs> yeah, and then I ran that company for about 13 years until I sold it um, to the late great John Texter, who uh, acquired the company in 2006. Crazy. I mean, that's just you know. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Let's take that all in. Well, well, <laughs> that's well, crazy. Know, we're taking it all in because I mean, there's so many things that without you, Scott, I mean, they just probably would not have happened for us, and they wouldn't have influenced us in the way they did. I feel like Marty McFly, you know, it's like when I get Chuck Berry on the stage and, you know, I'm not quite sure if that would have happened or wouldn't happen. You don't really know, you know, but um, I definitely was uh, either a, an important part of it or the Chauncey Gardner of the visual effects and technology world where I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. Well, that's usually what business is, you know, and, and also like being aware of that situation and making the best of it. And so that's probably your business side um, speaking to you and which, which is, which is right. And like what Anthony said, I mean, without your contribution, are you taking the risk to create a company such as digital domain and, and, and acquiring the attention of, you know, prolific directors like James Cameron or, you know, that's just, it's really amazing. So, I mean, the story itself, I mean, what you've done and, and the things that you accomplished with what you've had is, is, got to be really interesting i mean especially now getting the hindsight and looking at what's happening now and and what it's, what it was before and where it's going and and you know like before we like i said i don't it's, it's inevitable we're going to dig into this stuff but i didn't want to jump into it just just so fast so um with some of those experiences that you had um with those films and these different big productions what were some of the like more memorable moments that you can remember having like when you first started digital domain like was, were you shitting yourself? Like, you know, like the, <laughs> I would be because that's a big, that's a big leap, I imagine, you know, and this, the risk itself just to do, um, a, was it in that time, was it seem like something rational to do and, or did you feel like, you know, it might've been a mistake or, um, well, let, let's, let's take it back just a little bit further, you know, it was sort of, I remember the first moment when I realized that um, I wasn't in Kansas anymore. <laughs> and and I was sitting around in a meeting and we were talking about, I guess it would have been Indiana Jones 3. And there at the table were Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and myself and Dennis Muren and uh, a couple of other people. Man, so crazy. And, and <laughs> I, I looked around the room and I thought to myself, you know, if this would have been two or three years ago, I might have been sitting around the room with people that were talking about, you know, doing the new Levi's commercial or something <laughs> like that. Because that's what I was doing prior to. I was in the advertising, you know, commercial post-production and production world. And here I was, you know, having been thrown into the New York Yankees, you know, in the seventh game of the World Series. And and that was a real shock. I remember coming home to that time to my to my wife at the time and said to her, I can't believe what I'm doing. It's, like, <laughs> he, it, it's ridiculous. And yeah. that, you know, and the other thing is that both Stephen and George at the time, their attitude was sort of like, you know, well, of course, you know, this is the guy who's now and, you know, no problem. And they, it was just immediate acceptance. So I, I didn't necessarily have to prove myself 
to those folks, though I did have to prove myself to the ILM people who were at the time quite um, sort of wary of management mm. and uh, very concerned about who this new guy was and how he was going to act within the company and did he really support the, create, the creative team. And uh, it took me about three or four months and then ultimately... Um, you know, it's like the Hell's Angels, you know, at some point they ask you to pee in your pants and ride on the motorcycle and, <laughs> and, and they did, you know, and, and I got to wear the colors and, and then I was very much part of it. I became the sunny barger of the ILM team for That's those of cool. you who know the Hell's Angels. <laughs> yeah, so you earned it. You earned the respect. Yeah, so. I earned my stripes. Yeah. And that's cool that like George and, and Steven accepted you as well, right? It seems like those guys, um, from the interviews and just the things that I know from a distance, um, seem to have that, you know, that kind of trait about them. They want to get their projects done rather than be assholes, I guess, you know? Yeah, and, they, and, and, and particularly Steven's attitude, you know, because he's, he's really a 12-year-old boy at the time, probably in a 45-year-old man's body, maybe <laughs> at the time. You know, he, he, all he wants to do is play, and he figures that if you're in the playground and you were led into the playground, that you get to play too. And, and so that was that was pretty exciting. Now, if we move forward to digital domain, when I started digital domain, it was less of a dream and more of a necessity. Because what I did was, when I was at Lucasfilm, um, I and the sort of technical and creative team leads that were at Industrial Light and Magic had decided that. Um, we didn't want to be part of Lucasfilm anymore. We wanted to own our own company, and we had a plan to be able to go back to George and ask him if we could buy it, like a management buyout. And so we talked to a bankers, and it looked like we were going to be able to raise the money, but no one really had the chance to talk to George Lucas about whether he really even wanted to sell, though he constantly talked about you know, God, these businesses are terrible, and why am I in them, and it's costing me so much money. Um, um, but when it really came down to it, he was not interested in all of selling. And so at that point, I was sort of out of a job. I, you know, the head of the company was my arch nemesis, and he reported directly to George, and I reported directly to this guy. And, um, and when he found out that, you know, the team had was looking at a management buyout and that he wasn't part of it, uh, I think he felt like the rug was pulled out from underneath him and he didn't he no longer wanted me as part of the Lucasfilm team so for all intents and purposes he accepted my resignation begrudgingly and I gave it begrudgingly he accepted accepted it open heartedly and uh, now is without a job hmm. and of course I assumed that you know the guy who was doing what he was doing and considering what I'd done in the last five years or so, that my phone would ring off the hook. And my phone didn't ring at all. Oh, no. And so uh, at that point, it was, you know, I was married. I had three kids. I owned a home in Marin County and, you know, um, had two cars. And I said, Jesus, what am I going to do? So the necessity was to start another company that was somewhat similar to ILM. Coming that's from physical domain came. That's amazing. I mean, especially because you say you come from like humbled beginnings, you know, like as a poor Jewish kid growing up in the Bronx, right? Right. And I mean, I, I'm sure that um, through your childhood, whoever, I mean, I, we might have similar traits, but you just maybe you've established um, a certain work ethic. And so when it came to maybe building your own empire, it probably felt 
scary, but probably a, a bit natural, maybe or no? Like well, as I said, like as, as I said, a necessity. It was, it was, like, it was a necessity. I, I, you know, I needed, I needed to do something. And as I said, the phone didn't ring, so yeah. it wasn't like, oh my God, Scott Ross is out of a job, and wouldn't it be great if he came and ran fill in the blank? No one called. Mm. So then I, then it was, oh, now what am I going to do? Right. Yeah. yeah. And then building that was was the challenge. What was like some of the biggest challenge that you felt? you faced when you're creating digital domain well of course you know here we are trying to create something that um is is really big and powerful and expensive and and is very very visible in the in the in the world of hollywood you know in this business of show and um of course everybody in industrial light and magic saw this as a as a competitor and everybody at industrial light and magic and lucasfilm said you'll never do it it'll never happen it can't be done you know lucasfilm has been around for x number of years ilm is the industry leader you're going to fail and, you know and all of that stuff and and that is that's pretty uh, weighty stuff to face with sure. all of your friends and all of the people that were there supporting you and with you said you're what are you you're crazy it's going to fail and uh, you know facing the great abyss pardon the pun of <laughs> not having any work yeah, fuck. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, I mean, I don't even know how you guys would have back then found the artists. Because, yeah. I mean, we struggle with that sometimes today, just finding the artists, you know? So. Well, you know, it's, wow. fu it's funny that you say that because, again, you know, there was a, obviously a bit of, you know, um, ego involved here. And I assumed, I remember the day I got a phone call from Cameron and he said, hey, I had heard through the grapevine that you're starting this new company. I'd like to be a part of it. And I went home and I spoke to my then wife and I said, what do you think? You know, the last thing we really want is a pushy director. And she said, Scott, people are going to come work for Jim Cameron because he's Jim Cameron, but they're not necessarily going to come work for you. I thought about that and I figured she was absolutely right. Totally. His uh, name, the brand that uh, he brings is absolutely is worth, so, worth his weight in gold. You know, I said, yeah, Jim, you can be my partner. <laughs> Whatever uh, you want, throw me in the abyss, baby. Yeah, you can be in. And, and then interestingly enough, even with that, right, I, I had assumed that, you know, at least I would hire 30 to 40 people out of Industrial Light Magic who would come on board now with Jim Cameron, Stan Winston and Scott Ross. But in fact, only two or three did because, you know, it, there was that great divide between San Francisco and Los Angeles. And so we opened the, the studio in L.A. and all of those people in San Francisco, you know, have a Jones about L.A. And they were like, we're not coming. <laughs> yeah. So now we were faced with, you know, OK, now we got a company and really there are no world class artists. So it was a matter of sort of going after the existing companies and the superstars at the companies that were down in LA and then finding and growing our own. What was what what was the date of this? Like what what year are we in for it the It would have been um, probably October, November, December of nineteen ninety two. Nineteen ninety two. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm trying to think of the technology what was being used and, and how you would get a hold of these people and all that stuff, you know. Well um, the technology at the time and this is another interesting story, the technology at the time was was uh, all SGI Unix based, which is what we had done at ILM. So we had moved from like Macintosh where we were doing one frame at a time. So the odd frames were on one machine and the even frames were on the on the other machine. And you'd <laughs> use, you know, I was crazy and you'd just swap <laughs> back and forth. And 
and then you know we moved to to SGI machines and and so uh, when the company was started of course the first place I went to was SGI even though our funder was the IBM corporation because they didn't really have anything except for one machine that was this gargantuan machine which we actually got to use called the PVS the pre-visualization system but everything was Unix based and everything was SGI based and so Cameron and I make a trip up to Northern California to meet with the heads of SGI and we're walked into uh, the Terminator 2 screening uh, conference room <laughs> and we're sitting there and having a conversation with the powers that be at SGI and they're telling me that uh, they can't give me any discounts even though I know what the discount structure is because I bought them at ILM only nine months ago yeah and the reason they're telling me they can't give any discounts is twofold one is we're an IBM partly owned company and that's their big competitor and two um, they had put together a deal with Lucasfilm on my exit and Lucasfilm now knowing I was starting this company with Cameron they went and put a specific deal together that precluded other companies of comp and other competitive companies of getting the discount that they got. Wow! Oh, <laughs> so how shitty. Darth Vader can you get? <laughs> They're a pretty Darth Vader, man. I can tell you even more Darth-like stories. So the way around it, you know, again, necessity is the mother of invention. Sure, that's a great saying too. <laughs> uh, I wound up talking to um, a fellow by the name of Rob Burgess, who at the time headed up Alias Wavefront, and so we decided we were going to buy Al Alias software. But because he was a third-party vendor for SGI, he could actually buy the SGI machines for cheaper than ILM could buy it because they were not in the competitive space. So I made a deal with Alias Wavefront that they would buy as vendors our machines and that we would purchase those machines at cost from them if we bought their software. So we actually <laughs> wound up... Yeah, that's my Bronx stuff coming. Yeah, in. that is. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's, it's coming. It's coming through. You know, like yeah. Uh, yeah. What's that one saying about you know you just you, you can't change who you are internally. Right. You know? And so you're still got that that hustling side going on. <laughs> yeah, are you think, are, are you the type of person that like when somebody says no, you say go fuck yourself, or is like you know? Well, that... I, I've 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 learned not to say go fuck yourself. <laughs> I, I internally say go fuck yourself. <laughs> And, and now I at least smile and say, oh, really? Do you really feel that way? Maybe we can discuss about it. But meanwhile, inside, the internal voice is screaming, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's usually when you're onto something. Um, yeah. When somebody says you can't do it, that means that they didn't, they weren't able to do it, which which means if you're strong enough, it's a gold mine, you know, because it's uncharted territory, you know, and. And, and, and those are the times when you really got to open up that spider sense or whatever you want to say and, and, and tap into that and go, oh, okay, you think it's not possible and let's try that out, you know, so and proofs in the pudding with you. I mean, damn, you know, the amount of hustling and the, the amount of angles. I mean, did you lose your mind during this stage or was it? No, no, no. I, I you know, I, I have to tell you, you know, that I would go to sleep, you know, because the, the, it was so fragile, you know, it was, um, you know, did we have the money? Then IBM sort of had, they were going to give us the money and then the deal wasn't going to close. And then, you know, and meanwhile, all this time, um, I didn't have a job, right? Mm. And, and I had a wife and kids. and So crazy. And, you know, so it was, it was a lot of pressure. So during the day, I was too busy to question what it was that I was doing. I had full confidence that during the day that we were going to do it. But at night, 
when you're alone with your, you're just you and your thoughts, um, the thoughts used to creep into my head of, oh my God, what have I done? What, you know, <laughs> can I really pull this off? What do you think that, you know, when you're faced with that kind of adversity or these deep challenges are some of the things that helped you get through these, you know, I mean, like you said, you were distracted, which usually distraction by being busy is a, is a good defense. But like you said, when you are faced with yourself at the end of the day, and you're looking at this wall of challenges, I mean, what made you, what, what kind of, you know, I guess it's probably because you're a dad and you had bills to pay and you're responsible and you're a stand-up person to be able to do these things. Is that kind of what motivated you to push through or was there? Yeah, as I said, it, it was a, it was something that was necessary. There, there was, you know, fear was not an option. It was, it was all that I had to do. I had to do it. You know, you're just, this is the challenge you're faced with. And, you either got to fight the fight or die, and and I wasn't gonna die, so yeah. I fought the fought, fight. That's awesome. And and you are um, are you big on being really close with your family? And was this whole like stage of your life was it challenging to be a dad as well as like? You well, know? it was su it was super challenging. In fact, you know, um, um, I've been divorced now for about nine years. My kids are grown. I have a grandchild now. But there was a point in time when digital domain started, and I moved down to L.A. And I was here for about nine months before my family moved down from Marin because the kids were still in school. So that was a big separation. And then when they finally moved down, you know, I was working, you know, 80 hours a week. And so like my youngest child, who's now 23 and a half or so, I did not spend very much time with her. And uh, then after the divorce, we got divorced. She was about 14 years old. I didn't spend any time with her at all. So it was, you know, a, a word of wisdom for all you moms and dads out there. Um, while you're going through it, it seems like the most important thing you could do is make money and provide for your family. But another really important part is being there and being part of their lives. And that's a very difficult line to walk, as I'm sure you guys know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I have an eight-year-old uh, daughter and it's, you know, it's just trying to provide and then also making sure that you know, my diva-like qualities are, you know, <laughs> I'm feeding the diva inside, like you know, the person that wants to do all these great things and, and has dreams and aspirations. But it's cool to hear. I mean, it's a common, it's a common trait, especially amongst the people that listen to the podcast or are attracted to it. Um, parents or not parents, like it's hard to make time for friends and family even um, just because of, it's a selfish thing that we do. Um, <laughs> unfortunately you know like it's 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 important to acknowledge that though you know like yep. like you're saying scott and anthony i'm sure you agree is like this is all self um it's self-created you know and and it's important to recognize like the value of spending time with your children and stuff so that is that like a regrettable thing for you because I, oh without without a doubt and, and i would say another thing one of the other things that that really could help, and, and, and unfortunately I didn't have it, was um, uh, being on the same page with your spouse or your significant other, right? Yeah. Where the two of you agree, okay, this is how we're going to raise our children, this is how we're going to teach it, these are the separation of church and state, you're going to take these responses, I'm going to take, you know, and, and you approach it as a team, um, it's a whole lot easier. I'm not saying it's simple, but it's a lot easier than if the two of you have very differing approaches to how you want to raise your kids and, and, and what parenting is all about. And unfortunately, my ex and I, um, and that's why probably she's my ex, had very different approaches to life. Um, 
neither one saying there's a value judgment that hers was right or mine was right, but we just had, you know, sort of 180 degree different philosophies. And ultimately what I did, bad on me, was, you know, I, I took the position of, okay, you raise the kids, I'm going to go save France. You know, it's like, <laughs> I'm going to go fight the war and and I'm going to build this company and provide very well for you, for you guys. And and you're going to be the stay-at-home mom, which was her choice, and you're going to raise the kids. And since I can't really affect the way the kids are being raised because I'm out slaying the beast, um, it's it's on you. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's just not a good way to be. Yeah, it's a challenging act, you know, and especially with now, like, I mean, that might have worked maybe, what, like in the 60s? Is that about when that was, like, a very common thing where the husband would work and then the... Yeah, the, all I think the 60s, the 70s, and up until the 80s. And and in my situation, it, it was not an issue of sort of feminism or humanism. Actually, my ex wanted to stay home. She wanted to be the full-time mom. Hmm. I didn't want her to be. I wanted her to, her to go out and help slay some beasts with me you know but <laughs> she was she was really interested in and ultimately I said from my point of view not that I, it was my choice but I said you know I'll support whatever it is you want to do and if you want to be a full-time mom and take care of the kids then so be it which means I gotta slay the beast even more and again had we agreed that you know this is the way we're gonna raise the kids then it probably would have worked out much better sure right? sure that's but a powerful I, conversation to have, and and if you yeah. can, and, and you got to be really completely honest, right? You know, you got to be completely honest and and okay with the idea that hey, we might not be compatible to actually have a family, right. based off of our own selfish endeavors and, and things. So, yeah, and sometimes it's odd how um, you can get caught up in, in having a family and not realize like, oh wait, like I'm this person, and that's probably why there's so there you know there's so many um causes of divorce or just issues like that you know just due, due to people changing or to goals rearranging and stuff so I, just... I call it the i call it the another brick in the wall syndrome so it's <laughs> sort of like you know it's like there's the space between you and your significant other sure and and that space you can see each other in and have conversations and well as soon as you stop having conversations because you either think you know what they're going to say or you just don't want to have it because you're conflict avoidant. You place, place a brick there. Well, after a while, there's so many bricks, you can't even see the person on the other side of the wall. And yeah. then it's over. Yeah. Right? And it's just over. Yeah, it's, it's, it's probably one of the most challenging things um, that I've been faced with is just general, you know, human relations and, and living with somebody and... and and really loving them and caring for them it's a very challenging thing aside from everything else yeah yeah it's a and especially i mean because like uh if i mean having children is is incredibly difficult having children that you care and, and love and take care of and, and and you know foster their growth and stuff is the is really hard and challenging um because it's just it's not easy and there's lots of different levels to that so it's cool to know that also like when you're doing dealing with all this madness that you know, you had three kids and you had your wife and house house stuff going on and stuff because it's cool. It's relatable because, you know, you could have just been like a single guy like, you know, fuck it. Woohoo. Like, I don't care. But I imagine that having your family probably lit the fire harder for you. I, I would I would guess, you know. Well, it did two things. One, it, it made the need much more real. Yeah. Right. So it was in, in fact, had I not been married and had I not had a family, I probably would have pursued the path of being a musician. 
Yeah, there you go. I wouldn't have pursued the path of, of the business side, but having that responsibility made me sort of, I'll use the words, grow up to the extent that I, I needed to be the beast killer. And, uh, <laughs> I and like so I needed to do to that. <laughs> to do that. Yeah, the industry is a beast, so that's cool. I mean, that's yeah. a good way to use it as an analogy. So, and then when you're when you're so you're got you've got a digital domain established, um, things are finally starting to click, and then artists are coming into you guys like coming to to you guys now, right? And then, so then you you're acquiring clients, and you get projects. Like, what was some one of the first memorable projects that you managed to acquire or pull away from it? Uh, ILM. Well, the first project that we got was interestingly Levi enough, commercial. No, it was it was, Tim, it was the it was the logo for the opening of Tim Burton's films for Tim Burton's production company. Oh, cool! That was sort of the first thing that we ever did, and it was good because it was small. Yeah, manageable. And, it, and we wound up getting it because of you know Stan Winston being part of the company. He had a relationship with Tim on Edward Scissorhands, and so as a result of that, you know. Tim was looking for us to to do something for his logo and Stan said hey and we were off to the races the next project we had was color of night and I don't even remember the movie I don't even you know I don't I don't even remember except there was like a shot on a platform and I think I don't even know who was in it what? but but then the next big project that we got was Jim Cameron's true lies oh, and cool. um, and that be, that was now it's a massive project. Okay, we got we got to get our act together here, and it was you know it was very very difficult. There were disparate people from disparate companies and even different countries coming together to work on a project, and there was no real common language. You know, hmm. so, you, so there's a huge learning curve for you on that project then. Yeah, I'd say up until you know all <laughs> the way through Apollo 13. Uh, there was blood on the tracks. It was just, it was, it was, it was difficult, you know. Um, and there were lots of times when we didn't know if we could do it, and ultimately, at the end, we pulled it all out. So. Yeah, I mean, eventually, I mean, obviously, it worked out, and it's just crazy to think. I mean, there's so many projects that you've been a part of, and the things that you've worked on and stuff. I mean, what, some of the challenges. Mm-hmm. I imagine. What is one of the biggest challenges that you think that you probably faced on some of these of these, you know, like, is it human relations? Is it communication? You know, like if you just break it down to the basic, like, core. Yeah, it's all, it always gets down to the most difficult thing being um, human nature rela- or a, a relationship, you know, and uh, probably the most challenging and definitely the most difficult was Titanic because uh, it was such a visible project. Um, it was on the front page of daily variety in hollywood reporter almost daily they had i think it was variety that had an ongoing column on the front page of the trades and it was called titanic watch and because <laughs> of the size and scope of the project yeah which is funny to think about now because it's nothing compared to what's going on today yeah but at the time it was you know it was the biggest budgeted film of all time and everybody was freaking out and you know it missed its summer release date and it was you know, it was on the tip of everybody's tongues in Hollywood. It seems uh, to be a trend with Jim's work, though, right? He kind of goes bigger. That's he does. He only go. He only has one speed. It seems right for his projects. Yeah, Jim is. Jim is never the kind. As long as I've known him, was never the guy who ever shied away from a challenge. He would run full <laughs> at it, head down, and and take it on. And and so, Titanic was the most difficult because 
what we had was we had a director and a producer who was also a partner in the company. So there was a serious conflict of interest. <laughs> yeah, right? he wants to continually financially. Yeah, yeah, he wants to continually get the honey from the jar. I imagine. Yeah, yeah, and so <laughs> so you you guys must have had it had at it a couple of times, I imagine. But um, oh, yeah. at at the end of it, I mean, you guys, I'm sure because of the, the the huge success. I mean, isn't that one is still one of the biggest grossing films, Titanic? Second second largest grossing film of all time. What's the first one? Is that ET or something? I can't remember the stats on that. I think it's, it's the Avengers Cameron. now. Is it <laughs> the Avengers? Shit. No, it's another Cameron movie. It's Avatar. It's Avatar. Okay, yeah. So yeah, there you go, man. There you go. Shit, he goes big, or that's it, you know. So yeah, yeah. And do you are you still in communication with Jim, or are you guys still talk at all? Or I'm not. We had a major fallout as a result of uh, Titanic. Oh. And um, the last time I spoke to him probably was 1998. Wow. So we're talking what? 15 years ago yeah damn if you were to see him like at the grocery store would you engage with him or probably just no, avoid him i I'd, I'd i'd leave a large um circle around him and i think he would do the same oh okay that makes sense wow. and i mean every you know these projects are, which are interesting too is is they pull the good and the worst out of people and because they're so demanding and they're so they're, they can just really destroy you or relationships if you're not careful, I imagine, you know, so. Well, and, when some people, when people are are generally um, in the position where no one ever gets to say no to them. Yeah, it's just a really, really unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, they really don't like people saying no to them. Yeah, because it's you know? so alien to them, I imagine, too. Um, you know, people are just not used to it. If, if, if wherever you go and whatever you do, the answer is always yes. How can we make that happen? And then you run into somebody who stands up and says, "No, it's not going to happen. You're going to, you know, you're going to harm 400 people if you continue to work in this manner." And I'm sorry, I can't do that for you. That creates fireworks. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, but it's, uh, you know, I mean, after the success of that, did it did that help Digital Domain? Did it help your company grow more, or was it? It actually hindered the company. How so? Um, well, as we were doing the work, in the beginning, we were really the only the only vendor, the only visual effects vendor on the film. But as things were changing, you know, you're only as good in visual effects as the material that's being delivered to you. So if you if you you know, I always use the baker analogy. You know, if you have a, own a bake shop and you got the ovens burning and your bakers are standing there and you're you got the water in the pans and you got the flour in the pans and you're waiting for the eggs and the eggs don't show up you're not baking bread yeah so um, you know the eggs didn't show up they just didn't show up and and when they were supposed to show up had the eggs been delivered we would have been able to bake bread and deliver it on July 2nd which was the opening day mm. but we didn't and unfortunately um, it harmed digital domain, but fortunately, I think it really helped Titanic because Titanic opened in November, and it had no competition in November, December, January, February, March, April, May, and it, so it had had a window where there were no other films like it, and it dominated the box office. As a result, I think that's what helped make titanic the success that it was yeah i mean it's it's like you said it's like that perfect storm or it had a lot of things going for it and all the hype and all the attention that 
Hollywood was giving it, therefore the, you know, the world was paying attention as well and, you know, whether they liked it or not. So, which is, yeah, it's just really is an interesting thing. I remember watching it in the theater and it must be really a uh, weird experience for you. And it's like this, that for me when I work on a movie and I'm so close to it, I eventually hate it. And so when you went, did you ever go see it in the theater? Yeah, well, of course, I saw it in the theater because, you know, I went to the premiere yeah. and, uh, you know, took my kids to it. Um, I haven't seen it in the theater since, but did you cry? Until, did you cry? Did I cry uh, for all the wrong for all the wrong reasons? <laughs> uh, yeah, there was a lot of crying, but it, it was not it was not when Jack said when Jack said to Rose or Rose said to Jack, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, so your experience for being so close to these projects and then when you go to see it um, finished and in the theater with your kids and when you go, you're so close, you're so attached, you own this company with this director and he's, you know, making all this, making this movie and you're finally at the end of this road. Well, kind of, not all the way out. You're still waiting to see the numbers, obviously, but you go to take your children to the premiere. I mean, what's going in, what's inside your head and how are you feeling after the movie during like what's the experience for you well first of all you know it's funny that you mentioned you're still waiting for the numbers to come out yeah. you know in some ways I'm interested in the numbers to come out but unfortunately it has no bearing upon my life whatsoever so whether we make color of night you know or we're involved with Titanic the the success of the movie unfortunately has no financial implication whatsoever on the company that did the visual effects. Oh, because you guys were. I was going to say the same thing because I work in effects too. I was going to say, yeah, you don't really care. <laughs> I mean, you you care to the extent you know that it's really great that you worked on a movie that a lot of people are going to see. But from a financial perspective, it makes no difference. Oh, that's interesting. I for some reason I thought you guys were attached financially or had some kind of share or stock or some kind of something attached to that property because of uh, Jim's involvement and stuff. So, well, we we actually did, um, but it it came as a result of um, sort of a heavy hand on my part, which ultimately 20th Century Fox continued to show a loss on the film. So. You know, we had to threaten a lawsuit. Oh, that's right. I remember reading about this or hearing actually about this, this whole situation. It just, it's so, it's so fucking crazy. Like all these different avenues. Um, and it's, it's typical business, I guess. And, and, and it, but it's, it's really odd and unfortunate that these things occur. But this whole story with Fox and, and your guys' lawsuit and stuff. So they weren't paying you guys out or something. Is that what it was in, in simplest well, form? We had an adjusted gross participation in the film, and the adjusted gross. What, that what's that? Can you def can you explain that a little bit? Just for it's a it's a percentage of a number after certain things are paid, like a distribution fee, any gross participants, um, the production, the advertising, etc. It's not like gross points, like what Jim Cameron or people like Steven Spielberg or Jack Nicholson get which is first dollar gross. That means when you go to the movie theater and somebody buys a ticket for $10, $5 goes to the exhibitor, $5 goes to the distributor, and if you have 10% of first dollar gross, for every $10 ticket, you're getting about 50 cents. Wow, crazy. Yeah. Yeah, damn. 
and so Fox was was fudging it with you guys and not paying you. Is that the situation? I couldn't I couldn't say that they were fudging it. Let's just say that. Why well, don't you get in trouble? But the yeah. highest grossing movie of all time, and Fox was showing that they were not making any money. <laughs> tricky, tricky. So at what point at this stage were you just like, did you want to throw your hands up in the air and be like, I give up? In terms of being in the visual effects industry? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I sort of gave up by around. Willow, Nigel. No, no. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> about 2001. Okay, 2001. And what was the camel that broke the, or the straw that broke the camel's back? <laughs> Set it all back. Well, the camel that broke the straw's back. <laughs> just a really angry camel just yeah, stepping on straw. Camel. It's a pretty strong straw. Um, you know, what was it? It was, I just, it, after a while, you know, you smack your head up against the wall. Yeah. And at some point you say, this is really stupid, right? <laughs> it, it only took me, I started at ILM, I guess, in 1987 or something like that, 88. Mm -hmm. And so it took till, you know, the early 2000s for me to get it. I'm a slow learner and I have a hard head. <laughs> yeah, because you, obviously you're optimistic because you're an entrepreneur and you start companies. So you are, you know, you don't want to hear... You know, like like we talked about early on, it's like when some, somebody says, no, you can't do it, then you go and do it. It's part of your um, personality, I suppose, you know, so. But then you eventually get humbled by the, the powers of, of that be in life. And, and so at, in 2001, like you said, you were just like, this is stupid. And so do you remember that moment where you were sitting there with yourself or something or just dealing with a situation going like, this is fucking dumb. You know, like, why no, am there, I doing this? There, wasn't, there really wasn't a moment. When I started Digital Domain, the concept of Digital Domain was to be a producer of content. I realized full well that when I left Lucasfilm that the only money that was really made at Lucasfilm, and there was a lot of it made, was George's ownership, production of... Star Wars properties and Indiana Jones properties. Yeah, like right? the, so, the the merchandise and all that stuff. Not just the merchandise, the actual box office. I mean, they made a ton of money on Star Wars and Indiana Jones as well. Yeah. They should have. Yeah, of course. But Industrial Light Magic didn't really make much money at all because it was in the services business. Mm. So when I started Digital Domain, I knew full well that. There was no way we were going to ever make a ton of money being just in the services business. So my concept of the company when the company was started and when the business plan was written was that we would have a factory and a capability to produce our own content. And yeah. one of the reasons why I was so excited about working with Jim Cameron was because he was the new George Lucas. Yeah. And then I saw the counterpart in the animation side with John Lasseter and Pixar, where they had a factory, much like Digital Domain, though their factory was in the cartoon factory, ours was in the live action factory, but they owned their own content. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, that's what Digital Domain was gonna be. If Pixar was to the animation business, Digital Domain was gonna be to the live action, big budget visual effects business. And you know, when I looked at the two businesses, it seemed like the live action visual effects business was a much more viable, vibrant business because 
your audiences were everybody, not just little kids. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a more widespread. It's so funny that you're saying this, Scott, because I've I've just been pitching this exact idea (laughs) 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 to to do this exact thing. And I think I told you, Ash. Yeah, yeah. The time is now because of the technology that that it can actually be done at a price point that is, is, is viable. Right. Because the price point now is 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 an iMac. I, I did the VFX for the last Exorcism too on my iMac. Uh-huh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah, the technology and the advancement of it is just crazy. And especially, I imagine for you, when you're running a digital domain, um, having to be, you know, that's one of your crux. I imagine in the beginning, you're constantly. I imagine you must have been battling with that in the beginning, probably or no. Cost, I totally, I, cost structure. Sorry, go ahead. Just technology. No, I, was, I, was just, I was just interrupting because we never got to hear. It was my fault. We never got to hear the full story of the factory and why, oh, yeah. why go down yeah. that road. Yeah, 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 yeah. Please, let's hear what you. Like. So, I mean, that's what I wanted to do was create, create, as I said, the analog to Pixar, only in the visual effects live action field. The problem was, <clears throat> is that if you look to Pixar, the key creative personnel at that time, you know, the really, the locus of creativity was John Lasseter. Yeah, John, yeah. And John Lasseter didn't own a production company. He was an employee of Pixar. But my John Lasseter, if I could use the word my, (laughs) was Jim Cameron. And Jim Cameron owned a production company. And so for every dollar that Lightstorm Entertainment made, he got to keep a dollar. But for every dollar that Digital Domain made, he only got to keep about 13 cents because there were other owners in the company. So from the perspective of Jim, um, it was much better to have Digital Domain be his sandbox than to be his creative engine. Sure, sure. So the, this, the structural setup is different, obviously. Yeah. So the, the success wasn't um, on the same level as Pixar because of those big key elements right like you're saying well shifted those things we didn't have we didn't have the creative engine that we had was not really bolted onto our airplane (laughs) yeah yeah gotcha yeah yeah which makes sense too so but i mean it's 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 yeah sorry you're gonna say anthony no i was just saying that that's great for me to hear so that i know (laughs) (laughs) because yeah no i I mean, the dream for me is to do that because I do see that as something that's so, you know, viable now is to, to start creating content, you know, from the ground up with VFX companies and, and uh, hearing that, you know, having those 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 creators, you know, bolted, like one of the things, you know, like I want to be bolted to one of those things because I, I think what, well, James Cameron obviously didn't need this because he was huge already, but to get creators that, you know, the attraction would be the freedom, the freedom to create stuff is, is the attraction and to, to be able to do it with, with that sandbox. Yeah, the sandbox, right. yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Hey, by the way, I am available for consulting and for startups, my rates are pretty reasonable, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And it's what... <laughs> which... That's actually why you're here, Scott. Is we, yeah, that's uh, right, that's right, that's right. Yeah, we're just, we're sneaking into the podcast now, so. So what do you think? Uh, so... <laughs> now, tell us about the numbers. Yeah, uh, yeah, let's, let's see the numbers that you've figured out now. <laughs> no, um, well, as, as far as what you're doing now, so, like, let's go ahead and we'll pass over 
over a lot of these other experiences maybe we, if unless there's something that really sticks out to you in your memory of owning or running digital domain that you can think of is so you've in 2001 you're like this is ridiculous and the model's not working for you and it and you're beating your head against it so at that time did you just decide to make a big change or a shift or did you, you did you sell it to john in 2007 he said right so that was a six-year gap so in 2001 i i realized that i was never gonna continue to make this work if i focused my energies on the visual effects side mm -hmm. and what i needed to do was focus my energies on the creative side and i needed to build a creative organization that would become the engine that would drive the digital domain that i envisioned back in 1993 Okay. And it clearly wasn't going to be Cameron and Winston because those guys sort of walked out. So now, how was I going to do it? So the first thing I needed to do was I needed to have um, the visual effects side of the business, the commercials and advertising and feature films and all of that, managed and handled by a team of people that were professional and that I didn't have to spend my daily um, time really focusing on that part of the business. So. The first thing I did was I jettisoned that part of the business from my day-to-day -day activities. Oh, cool. And that took, you know, that took a period of time because I had to find the right people, make sure the right people, you know, got it, understood it, made sure the structure was in place. So that happened at around 2001. And then what I had to do is I had to build a creative side of the company. And I had to do it, unfortunately, with no capital because... <laughs> <laughs> because I, I, I had no money available to me because the other part of the company was bail, barely puttering along in this visual effects field of, yes, we were churning out, you know, large contracts and large films. We weren't really making any money, right? Mm -hmm. So where was this capital going to come from? So, of course, I go back to my board and I say, let's go through another raise of a round of capital. Unfortunately, the board says no. So... I have no access to additional capital, so what can I do? Well, again, necessity is the mother of invention. Let's try to use the patina of digital domain and the fact that it's a, sort of a creative sandbox for people that would get excited about being in a creative sandbox that wouldn't have the ability to be in a creative sandbox. So, of course, at first what you start doing is thinking about, well, what directors can you approach? And there are certain directors that we could approach. Unfortunately, the directors that we could approach were very similar to the directors that we had been working with or that we were working with. Because which of the work. Was, Is that why? Yeah. So it's like, you know, I know I've known David Fincher for a hundred years and you know, he's a brilliant, <laughs> brilliant director, but David had the same sort of position that Jim had, which was, you know, why do I need to do something at digital domain? I get to make my own movies. Yeah. So where do you look for somebody or or people like that? that have the skill sets and also the desire to be able to create great movies. So I came up with this rather interesting idea, which was who are the people in Hollywood that actually get to make great movies and get to make great movies and are taken advantage of, treated like crap, and would do almost anything to climb their way up the ladder? And the answer to that is Canadians. writer. Writers, writers. I'm just joking. I said because Anthony. Nice, Anthony. Oh, writers. Okay, sorry. Yeah. So, um, I went out searching for, 
writers that I thought had those skill sets. Awesome. That's a smart and, move, actually, because of the, um, you know, if you get the right personality trait that works with them, you can really turn out something interesting because of that. So that's cool. And so you managed to, to attract yourself to the right people or? So well, I did. I did. And uh, the guys that I sort of came upon who were really great writers and they wrote Aladdin and Pirates of the Caribbean and Men in Black and and uh, Shrek and uh, National, National Treasure and, you know, on and on and on and on and on. They were great guys, great writers and desperately wanted to be, you know, sort of captains of their ship and not just be the writer who's the nerd who's brought in, who's set in the backseat, who's paid his money. And then once the producer and director get the script, they're like, oh, what was that writer's name again? <laughs> so, yeah. so, which is true in Hollywood. So these guys were really excited about it. Unfortunately, um, the capital structure of the company was such that we couldn't do for them what's, what, um, what, uh, Ed Catmull and company did for John Lasseter, which was make them a major shareholder in the company because all of the shares were taken. Uh -huh. And Jim and Stan were not interested in really allowing those shares to go anywhere else. So we were stuck. And uh, damn, yeah, that's a that's a tricky situation because you want <laughs> you want growth, but you have no capital. Then you figure out the solution. Then then you, you have nothing. Done, right? Yeah, you can't get it done. So and this is like what two thousand one to two thousand three, where you're just like, ugh, is that probably about the? It was a couple of years maybe of doing this, or a year, or six months, or something. Yeah, it was around two thousand and five when I realized I, you know, been down the road and I knocked on every door and I tried to do whatever it was that I could do and. So by about 2005, the game was up. Your exit plan initiated. Huh? And um, and now you write children's books? Is that what you do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and teach now boxing? I travel, now, I, now I travel to Canada looking for talent. Aha. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. yeah. And you also travel to Japan, which is awesome, like we were talking about your uh, second home out there. So <laughs> it's cool. No, okay, so then by then you were just like, all right. And so because you tapped a well of all the resources that you felt that was... Yeah, you know. it was really clear that it was endgame. Yeah. And and the industry had changed so much where now there was all these foreign subsidies and tax subsidies and there was a lot more competition and, you know, all, India was in the game and China was getting into the game and the UK was now dominating because... Her Majesty and the and the, the government of the United Kingdom has decided that they're going to subsidize visual effects, and so it was it was a zero sum game. You know, the crumbs that were left on the table were quickly swiped away, and uh, the game was all for all intents and purposes over. Yeah, yeah. So I knew I, I, I knew I had to get out. Yeah, it it, it uh, dried out pretty quick, I think, and, and due to the change, like you said, all these these big business changes and the way the industry shifted and stuff. It's, I mean, it's what are you gonna do? <laughs> you know, like how can you compete with a country? You know, like let alone a co another company. So no. when you got these guys that are wanting to pinch the penny and they're trying to make the most out of their buck, they're gonna on they're they're not gonna care about the artists or the craftsmanship. It seems like they're gonna want to just get their return on their investment. Which, hey, all in, in all honesty, is I totally agree with. You know, like if you well, put. Un unfortunately, that's not really what happened. What do you think? What, hap what is it? What happened? What happened was is that um, 
we could no longer compete with the likes of the UK because the UK was getting tax subsidies from yeah. the government. And it wasn't like the men and women that were owning the companies in the UK, A, had the talent internally in the UK or in New Zealand. And it wasn't that the companies that were producing the visual effects in the UK or in New Zealand were actually making any money either. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's a man. What a twist. Well, yeah, no, I can, I can say that I just went through. I'm not going to say for what studio. Do it. Um, do just, it. Just, no, 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 I'm not doing it. So I just went through the budget, and, and, and I, I'm always totally blown away by the fact that if you look at dollars spent on on things in a in a in a budget, it's crazy. And I've heard you talk before, Scott, about this. You know, like how how visual effects in today's films, and post in general, make the film as good as it is. Yeah. Because the the raw stuff pie. that you get. Oh, no, any every film. Yes. Yeah, every true. film. It's like. Because we've gotten used to a, a sheen in films now, and it's like, and so every film requires a ton of post. But the post budget is pretty much the smallest part of the film, <laughs> and and you go, but this is what makes it. It's what makes it. Of course, the story is is the the true star. But really, when you go to the the movies now, people are going to see spectacles, and they're going to see something they haven't seen before. And to to look at a budget and see see that that it's. It's so little a part of, of the dollar spent. It's crazy. And, and to see that where it's spent <laughs> yeah. is even more crazy. And what's that do and what that is doing to the people that are creating it and their lifestyles that they have to endure to create oh, these things. It's a choice, you know, but the thing is like, you know, like who's really going to be suffering at that? If the budget's that low, then who's going to be getting paid less and should they be getting paid less and blah, blah, blah. I mean, the well, argument's so... Let yeah. me correct you for a little bit. Yeah, please. I, I, actually, on the movies that are the big budgeted movies, you know, the the Supermans, the Iron Mans, the Thors, the Ender's Games, the Avatars, the visual effects budget <clears throat> is oftentimes 50% or more of the overall budget. Crazy so, that I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> no, 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 no. It, it's not how much money they spend; it's how much money you get to keep, mm, right? Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. That, that's that's the real critical issue. It truly, you know, people say, "Well, the budget on Avatar for visual effects was, you know, I don't know, a hundred and eighty-five million dollars." That's a lot of money. Well, yes, but they got to keep very little of that. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know, it's like because it's all used for expenses, right? Yes, you yeah. you pay all your people. I mean, it's like multiple changes, multiple days, multiple elements, multiple blah 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 technology. When the when it's all said and done, you make no money. Is that Scott because it's a flat fee for most for most cases? That's correct. Yeah. You go in and you bid it, and then they and again back in the old days, and they called the good old days. Uh, they actually weren't good old days. They were just better bad days than they are today. Yeah, I remember so, that from your talk. <laughs> in, in, the, in the good old days, you know, you had three people you were bidding against, you know, or two people, or sometimes at ILM. We were the only people that could do the work, and the studios knew it, and we knew it, right? Mm, there's like but a monopoly. nowadays, there are 15 companies that can do that work. Yeah, which is and just each one of them are desperate. And the the desperation leads to um, the constant underbidding. yeah underbidding, which leads yeah. to a lot of spec work, which is a I mean that's something that I've been um, really 
stuck through um, through the motion graphics industry because that's kind of where I come from with commercials and motion graphics and all that stuff. And there's tons of companies that are spending all this money on overhead and artists and paying them basically to do work on spec, hoping that they win the project and then hoping that they pay the bills. And it's just, it's a really interesting because, you know, the client obviously owns, has the power, um, but the situation that the, uh, that these houses put themselves in is, is very, it's really odd. If you had a, if you had a solution or, or, or like some advice of change for these situations, what would it be? And it, do you think it's even worth even trying? Because especially like we were talking about, like now India and China are, in, in, are involved. And when you have nations with tax subsidies and, and these different like allowances, it's like, how do you even compete? You know, and is there right. even is there even a point to do so? You know. Well, again, we get back to that concept of if I help you make gravity, and gravity does the kind of business that it does, why do the producers get back end, the directors get back end, but the people who did eighty five percent of the movie don't get back end? Yeah. So you think that these companies should work out before these projects come together? Everybody should. Um, be aware of making sure that they get a percentage of the growth so that they don't go under like you know rhythm and hues and those kind of things you think that'd probably be a good way to start it well it would be a good way to start it I, I don't think that these companies are not aware that they need it i think these companies are scared to afraid. death yeah. to ask for it yeah because if they ask for it they they're afraid it. that the studio goes well i'm not doing your deal so i'll go to company b sure but my take is always that there needs to be an international trade association where the entire trade says you know what from now on when we bid projects we're asking for back end yeah that's not a bad idea i mean because it's a respect thing you know so like you said and, and i think we all agree especially like you know perfect example of a recent film is life of pi you know like without all the crazy hard work that all those people put in um it would have been what who would who would pay for that nobody would pay to watch that nobody and, and to, to watch what to life of pi yeah. you know like, oh yeah no life of pi doesn't exist without rhythm and hues no gravity doesn't exist without frame store yeah. you know avatar yeah. doesn't exist without weta yep these films and and they're big they're bigger and more important than the actors within them almost because of the world that that's created so i think the idea what you're saying the trade federation all that stuff i think that's not a bad idea and so you think that what might be holding that uh holding that up is what the competitive nature of these companies and then the fear of it probably yeah come come to us and we and we'll we won't ask for back end <laughs> yeah yeah that's you know, yeah that's really it's a lack of respect for themselves and then for the rest of the community. You think that might be what it is? Or... I, I think they're scared to death. Yeah. I think they're all fr scared to death because there are only six clients. And that if the six clients get together and say, we're no longer working at company ABC, they're out of business. But if every big company asks for it, then they, the, the, you know, the power structure would change. Yeah, because, I mean, like, if you look at it, like, you know, like you said, the directors and the producers and all that stuff, they get the back end. Um, there's a lot of unions and stuff that, um, kind of protect these people and, and create a lifestyle that's somewhat you know viable and stuff so and you think that because of fear and all these things which is totally reasonable and I get that I understand that if I owned a company and and not everybody who had my 
back or my corner and felt the same as me, I wouldn't want to make that jump because I'd be like, shit, I have all these bills to pay. I have these responsibilities. It's totally understandable. Sure. But I'm trying to figure out internally in my own brain, uh, just to wrap myself around it. And if I was in these people's shoes and, and I own, I'm, I'm a freelancer and I run my own company. I'm just myself, but I'm trying to look at it as responsible and respectfully from everybody's point of view and see what would help, you know, prevent these kind of situations and and when i do actually i never really find a, a, a straight resolution other than that people that are doing these things need to respect themselves and have a little bit of um communication and, and respect amongst one uh, one another you know and the um, thing is you might have it so you have these big companies and, and they all say you know what we're going to do this we're going to agree to this and then then the the bigger companies have to bow down to that but then i guarantee that there's going to be some shithead company is going to come out and go like hey we're not going to do that you just hire us you know and it's going to be this um you know just this fight for these projects and it's just like you know like people will slave away to do star wars just because of it and, and they'll be willing to you know cut out these important things which is respect and stuff to have such a chance to do these projects and so therein lies the psychological issue i think you know with this stuff for me well, when the, i think about the, it the thing that hurts my feelings about it tissue no no uh, no i haven't got a tissue here the, the thing that <laughs> bugs me is that the dream would be that you know you ask for back end and the dream would be that they go you know what you you guys over at digital domain or you guys over at ilm always do a better job so yes <laughs> you know and <laughs> yeah. and that would be the dream for me or you know what you're Ash Thorpe and you do great designs, so yes. Thank but the you. problem that I find that hurts my feelings is that people can't tell the difference because I could tell the difference. Yeah. When ILM, ILM or Digital Domain does something, I could tell the difference. Yep. But you know, if, if, if it's done you know, at a place that you know, maybe doesn't have the same you know, infrastructure or you know, R&D department, you know, you, you see it. You see it in films when when someone's cheaped up and they've gone with a company that maybe doesn't have the R and D department to do a water sim or whatever, right? You see it all the time. And my, I mean, it hurts my feelings that people go, you know what? Let's just go with the cheaper option. It doesn't matter if it's better. <laughs> it just yeah. makes does that for me? It just makes me feel like we're just trash. So <laughs> what's <laughs> the point? Why it hurts my that's why it hurts my because yeah, because you're staying up all night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and now Scott, you're free from all this stuff, huh? And now you feel like um so you you don't you're not in the visual effects at all anymore, right? I'm not. You're all yes. <laughs> <laughs> free. Yeah, you're free. God almighty, I'm free at last. And you're finally playing uh, music now? I am, but I'm I'm not very good and and the prospect for a 62-year-old Rockstar is tough, you know, unless you're Mick Jagger. Dude, just hang out with <laughs> hang out with Justin Bieber, dude. There you no, go. no, thank you. You can I, have I'll some Bieber's or whatever. There are, there are certain things I just can't bring myself to do. <laughs> I thought one of the funniest lines that you had said in one of the talks is that you often are working on the best parts of the worst the films. The worst movies. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was so funny because I, I can relate with that, or I just I think it's really funny. <laughs> yeah, but um. Uh, so now you are involved with this madness and and so it seems like through your transformation that you're willing to open your mind and open your voice and opinions because you're not caught up in this you know well I, I'm in the race. lucky position of 
A, having the seniority to have been through the fire. Sure. And B, not having the fear of being blackballed because I already don't work in this business. So yeah. I could actually speak my mind as I see fit. Which is beautiful. You know, and, and speak truth to power. Um, the problem is, is, you know, to use another stupid, you know, euphemism is you can't, if you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And so I have tried for the last 25 years to be able to form a trade association as, as early, as late as a year and a half or so ago, I got all of the major players sitting around a table at a major law firm here in Los Angeles to discuss the possibility of a trade organization. And none of them really fully support it. They're, they're, they're all scared, <laughs> still scared to death. So, you know, I haven't given up hope. You know, as you see, I, I've been the kind of guy that when faced with, you know, uh, you know, peaks that are very difficult to climb, you know, I sort of pull out the snowshoes and the, and the pick and I start up. So I, I'm going to continue to do it. But really, at what point do you have to, do you have to, what, what do you have to get to where you can't breathe any oxygen and you're drowning to death that you realize that you're on the way to the bottom. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, I just don't understand when that's going to happen. I'll continue trying, but you, you seem, you seem like a romantic. So yeah, you're a hopeless romantic with this stuff, huh? <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, you know, it's like I, I dedicated most of my adult life to it and it's brought me great opportunities and great experiences. And, you know, um, not that I'm getting paid for it now, but I, I, it's, it's the, it's my effort back to the men and women that were the artists that helped build my career. If it wasn't for the artists, um, there would have been no digital domain or industrial light magic. It, it was not about George Lucas. It was not about James Cameron. It was not about me. It was about the, the guys and gals that sat in front of computers or models or miniatures or motion control cameras that work, you know, 15, 18 hours a day to make images look great. And they're losing their jobs and they're losing their families and they're traveling all the world trying to just keep their, their families fed. It's just wrong. It's wrong. So. Yeah, no, it's, it's good. It's cool to hear that, you know, it is true, you know, and it, I mean, it is as, as, um, privilege the lifestyle that we live in it there's still you know there's there's desire and need to, to be better you know and and it's that's where it leads me to think like you know how can we make it better and if so and that's why i was asking you and so the trade the trade organization that you were talking about having um kind of a system and so and it's it's totally such a depression to think that like you you and all the power and all the things that you've done and and then you having all these people there and they're still not into it and like the you know the whole the whole horse analogy it's just like damn you know like uh it's just unfortunate you know and and i think what's gonna happen maybe probably from a lot of this stuff is that it's just gonna all sink it's gonna all just fall into itself <laughs> you know <laughs> i mean where is it gonna go you know all it's right like... let's start sniffing glue now what do you say <laughs> oh, i'm totally down <laughs> you know, hey, listen I, I i'm sorry i gotta cut it short but i gotta run now no problem uh, i hope that's okay no it's, it's totally want, fine if, if people are actually really interested we might be able to do it again i would so love to you, you're a gem for even spending time with us you know because we don't know one another and it's fucking yeah. Awesome that you <laughs> for you, you share your time. This is great. Oh, man, for me, it's a dream come true. When I was, you know, like even 10 years ago, I remember I was in a bookstore and I looked at the digital domain book, you know, the one I'm talking uh, about. Yeah. And, and and that that for me, huge inspiration. The company was a huge inspiration. 
I mean, everywhere you've been, it's been a huge inspiration for me. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. Yeah. Nice yeah. Keep kicking ass, dude. <laughs> keep the fight. Keep the fight alive. We'll try, dude. We'll try. Oh, we will. We're gonna fight until we have to sniff glue too. Yeah, we'll uh -huh. be at, we'll be All at right. 62 and we'll be like, ah, fuck it, we're out of here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Man. All right. Have a good night. See ya. Bye, guys.